Hello, and welcome to the Dottacast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenna B. Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Pork Wenton. And welcome to the 152nd episode of the Nauticast titled The Dark Knight Rises. Yes, another great title. Knockout. An analysis of a storm of swords, Jamie won, in which Jamie Lannister, of course, proves himself to be unquestionably, unquestionably, is this correct, Emmett? The greatest point of view in all of A Song of Ice and Fire and of any story in all time. Two episodes back from hiatus, folks. Two episodes back and he's already <laughs> determined to be wrong. <laughs> Gotta give him credit. That's determination. And we are joined by a special guest for this episode. Uh, none other than returning special guest, none other than Shiloh Carroll. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for coming on. We had such a great time with you uh, just doing a solo episode with the two of us. And now we got all three. What could be better? <laughs> <laughs> That was a great episode. I really enjoyed the episode on medievalism. It was it was such a blast to listen to. Uh, among all of the episodes, I enjoyed that one. Um, I enjoyed everyone equally great. They were all equally great. I <laughs> equally great. But I that one touched my specific interest because I was a as a history major. I did a lot of medieval studies uh, specifically, so I was very attuned to to what you were saying. So I was a plus, thumbs up, great job. <laughs> Thank you. As always, this episode is brought to you by our Not a Small Council, our Hand of the King, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Tim Bob, Troubleshooter of Systems and Designer of Circuit Boards, Lord Commander of the King's Guard, Mark N., Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragan Michael, Warren the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman, and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, the Quilled Lion, War of the West, Herald the Golden Tooth, Master of the Bainfort, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, Lord Jake assisted to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dane, and Prince Rhaegar Turkey. Sad Prophecy Boys Club, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Lawrence Prince of Dorne, Kelly Ward, the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Stephen the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, the Blue Winter Rose, Knight of Highgarden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, and Priest of the Drowned God, Sir Sorcedelica, Sugar Tit Stent, the Tragulite Warrior, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, who has chosen a brand new title as we announced last week for a Storm of Swords, which is, of course, Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stand, Harold Cher, Ambassador of Chromatica, Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Dades and Gentle Dems, and the Nauticast, Non-Binary Nada Army. Love that title. Holdover, the waiter for Tebow, A.A. Ron Damper, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the first of her name, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee the Great, Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, Maker of Drawings, and the Michelangelo of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Lord Adam T, Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kim, and the Wolverine of House Corgoyle, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face, Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounderhead of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties in the Frozen Wastes, Lord Peter, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Harrison, Absent Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Harren Hall, Olaf, Proponent of Establishing a Feudal, Pseudo-Democratic System of Great Councils, Wherein Every Count Votes, Sir Tim, The Knight Who's Guided by Voices, Lord Nick, 
Thucydides, Lord of Plagues, Sir Jack, Lord of Sir Arthur Dana, and Prince Rhaegar Targaryen, Sad Prophecy Boys Club, Part 2, Lady Anna, the Lovely Castellan, Pat, Iru with the Blood Bro and Guardian of the Bone Blade, Luke, Lord of Lone Leaf and the Pillar of Autumn, Joe Snow, King of the Metro North and Protector of the Tri-State, Squire Matt S., Future Matt S., the one who will bring balance to the kingdoms, Lord Kyle, Lord Samuel Seaworth, Sir Max, Lord Commander of the Constitutional Guard, Lady Ivory Dane, aspiring noble author in the Seven Kingdoms, Lady of Starfall, Warness of the South, and the patron of free wheeling bisexuals. Lady Jamisa, she who suggests that coconuts migrate. Lord Christoph of Arendelle, official ice master and deliverer, the valiant, pungent, reindeer king, keeper of feisty pants, and prince consort to his ginger sweet love queen, Anna. Lord Sir Septon Brothers, Sir Grizzly Adams, the King's Justice, Word of the Kingswood, and Sheriff of the Seven Kingdoms. Sir Kel, contractor in charge of continually extending the small council table. And returning back actually has been around for a while. I just um, I just kind of fucked up putting it back on the list because he's been a patron of ours, a small council patron for a while. But returning back is Lord Travis, Master of Ships in War of the Ways, Captain of the War Galley, Night Wolf, the ship that stalks the seven seas and wheeler of the Valyrian steel trident summoner, the, bra- the blade that brings the deep ones. Whew. Welcome back, Lord Travis. Sorry again for not having you on the list for our small council patrons. Thank you to you and thank you to all of our small council patrons. Thank you to all our small council patrons as always. And all our spoiler warning, as we say in every episode, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Dunkin' Devellas, histories, interviews, the Winslowator sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Queer Alex, Beyonce's favorite stan, Herald of Cher, Bastard of Chromatica, Exalter of Black Lives, and Defender of Trans Lives, Rainbow Commander of the Thedes and Gentle Thems, and the Nauticast's Non-Binary Not an Army, who asks, I'm so excited to reach the midpoint of the published material. I feel like Storm is not only the midpoint of the series, but also a breaking point in the narrative as the relatively singular narrative explodes after this book. So my question is a bit of an open-ended one. If you were in George's shoes, or his editors, and you were going to change or alter any details of Storm to make an easier-to-conclude series, what would you change? Would you delete characters? Skip Marine? Have the Red Wedding fail? Continue with the five-year gap regardless? How would you approach editing this pivotal book to still be strong, but also not create a narrative that is so hard to complete? And that's a terrific question. What do you think, Jeff? How would you come back to Storm in such a way that would make Feast and Dance kind of easier to write? So that's the thing. So uh, this is a really hard question to answer because originally George's idea was that the characters would age up naturally and you'd have an Arya chapter here and then three months later you'd have Arya too and, and the characters would grow up, right? So he's at this point in the story where he's writing and he's thinking, okay, this is going to go great. I have this great idea. The characters are all going to be, you know, Bran's going to be 17 years old by the time I get to A Dance with Dragons and no, that shit just did not happen. It did not work whatsoever for, for A Song of Ice and Fire. So George's next solution was, ah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a five-year gap, a five-year gap where I'm going to end A Storm of Swords and then push the narrative five years forward to the next book, which of course was A Dance with Dragons, which we can get all into this stuff. We've talked about it many, many times in the past. So how to make this like congruent with the actual Thing is it as it evolves since George eventually abandons the five-year gap and ends up writing the story chronologically after it after it occurs. I think you probably you probably want to somehow age up the characters a little bit because if that was the the big deal to begin with, you maybe want to have some of these chapters occur a little bit wider apart chronologically. I in terms of like edits and features that I would kind of like move out of like a Storm of Swords, and we're gonna talk about this when we get to the Aria chapters, but man. 
those first couple Arya chapters are, are they're not bad chapters. Okay. They're not bad chapters, but they're, they're a little redundant and a little kind of unnecessary to the overall plot progression and arc for, for Arya. I think you want to probably get her speeded on to her eventual journey in Bravos going forward, probably by the end of a storm of swords. Although I think the way that she ends storm is, is lovely and great. I think would I skip Marine? No, I think Marine is really important for Danny's story specifically because it's important for her to learn that, you know, conquering is really kind of fucking fun, right? It's fun to be like, uh, to go in there and like wipe the floor with a bunch of fucking slavers, like every day, like I would love to have that job. But then when you find out that she's in Marine and she finds that actually this sucks a lot, like I have to do things I don't, I'm not really enjoying doing, you realize that there are consequences to that, that kind of kick-ass action-y moments from, from A Storm of Swords, which really sets up her, her arc in A Dance with Dragons. I, I think the Red Wedding, I, I get it, like Rob and Catelyn, everyone loves Rob and Catelyn, but they have to die in the story for A Song of Ice and Fire to make sense. I I speak hard truths only, but I speak them out of love for, for everyone. I think that... It's important. The Red Wedding is is both seminal to A Song of Ice and Fire, but it's also really sets up the rest, the remaining events from the story. But I've talked long enough. Shiloh, how are you going to improve A Storm of Swords? <laughs> you, because you are actually a published author, unlike uh, myself, who, you know, despite <laughs> having many accolades, has not been published yet, professionally at least. <laughs> yet, we need to emphasize the yet, yet. there. Yet. <laughs> um. <sighs> As a fiction writer, I would simply not write a series. <laughs> That's how I'm getting around it. I look at the idea of writing a trilogy and go, mm, nope, just not going to do it. Standalone books all the way. Um, He really has worked himself into a position where since stuff's already out, you can't back up and you can't fix stuff, man, I would, I would just have a panic attack and die. <laughs> in his position, honestly. Everybody gets all down on him for write it faster, George, and I'm like, God, man, he's he's really in a corner here, and I do not blame him at all for how long it's taken to do this. I don't know how I'd fix it. Yeah, because as much happens in Storm, there's also just storylines we don't check in on, like the Ironborn. We only hint at the Dornish. We only hint at what's going on in Essos, and he leaves himself a lot of wiggle room, and then he took full advantage of that wiggle room and then some i mean like part of me wants to be brutal and say just like get rid of stoneheart as awesome as stoneheart is she still hasn't paid no. off in feast or dance like it, I mean, it, it, no i mean i love it when catalan comes back i think it's one of the most amazing moments in the story but if you're going to be brutal at making feast and dance easier to write be be done with the riverlands i guess because they don't matter mm. as much as the north of king's landing to the end of things and you know I think the Ironborn, I think you, if I'm right about Euron, you kind of have to keep, still have them around because he turns out to be kind of important. The Dornish, he should have just written them as important from the get-go so he didn't have to spend so much time catching us up on them. And like Shiloh says, there's yes. just not, it's too late with that. So yeah, I sympathize. I think there, I think, I think there are some things that are a little bloated in Feast and Dance. Where I guess you can change a chapter here, a chapter there, but that doesn't change the overarching problem, which is that he just ripped up the game board so completely in Storm that all he could do for the next two books was stitch it back together. It's just a testament to how how crazy shit gets in this book. It's crazy to me, too. Like, not just how crazy, like, A Storm of Swords gets, but how George follows it up with even better books after A Storm of Swords, right? I mean, we can have the debate. Obviously, people are going to endlessly debate. But in our esteemed, correct opinion, 
you know, feast and dance, I think, are improvements, despite the fact that he's like remaking the entire series as on the fly almost. And of course, oh, sure. when I say on the fly, of course, over the course of 11 years, making, you know, feast and dance into one series. Uh, but and yeah. I love all that stuff. I love the Stonehearts material we've gotten so far. I love the Ironborn and Dornish material we've gotten so far. But, you know, this is why George is, is, is it's become just a nightmare scenario, because he has to launch these fresh plots off the ground while also wrapping up all the main characters and introducing yep. the young Griff stuff, so you know there's there's nothing he can cut that won't that won't uh, inspire outrage, and that again is just a testament to how good it is. It's just it's just Agreed. it's just too much of a good thing, unfortunately. A song of ice and fire. In writer speak, this is why I'm not a pantser, because <laughs> 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 you end up with this kind of a mess. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, Queer Alex, for the question that we uh, we uh, did our best to answer. Uh, if you want to ask us questions, we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher-level patron over at patreon.com slash ASOIAF, where you can also get show notes, bonus The Song of Ice and Fire and Pop Culture and Fever Dream episodes, free merch, access to the Nauta Slack, and more. So check us out again at patreon.com slash ASOIAF. Yes, indeed. And, you know, the Fever Dream episodes, we're going to start them up again. We're recording our next episode on Chapter 20 this week. So if you are a patron, it is going to be coming your way relatively shortly. So check your feeds for that. And for all of our $5 above... $5 $5 and above a month, poor fellow and above patrons. Our next bonus episode, of course, will be an in-depth analysis and look at the 2008 animated film, Waltz with Bashir. Again, this episode will only be available to our poor fellow and above patrons. So come join us at patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with, um, well, we've we've never actually checked in with Jamie Lannister before, but I guess when uh, when Catelyn last checked in with Redemption Man, that is aka Jamie Lannister, she had questioned him and got, then got mad online when the blonde god talked some shit back to her. She ordered Brienne to bring her sword. Let's find out the outcome of all of that in this synopsis of A Storm of Swords, Jamie 1. An east wind blew through his tangled hair as soft and fragrant as Cersei's fingers. He could hear birds singing and feel the river moving beneath the boat as the sweep of the oars sent them toward the pale pink dawn. After so long in darkness, the world was so sweet that Jamie Lannister felt dizzy. I am alive and drunk on sunlight. A laugh burst from a laugh burst from his lips, sudden as a quail flushed from cover. Quiet, the wench grumbled, scowling. Scow suited her broad homely face better than a smile. Not that Jamie had ever seen her smiling. He looked amused. He amused himself by picturing, by picturing her in one of Cersei's silken gowns in place of one of her studded leather jerkins. As well dress a cow in silk as this one. Obsession over Cersei, unexpected and surprising poetic musings, and misogyny. There's classic Jamie material that we start a Storm of Swords off with. Jamie thinks that Brienne could grow good with those muscled legs and arms, but she never grew tired throughout the night. By the way, he's so not into her already. Brienne spoke like a highborn and wore a long sword and dagger. But can she handle a sword well? Jamie was going to find out, which of course has absolutely no subtext at all. As for Jamie, he was in handcuffs and foot cuffs joined together with a chain because that's his kink, maybe? And we do not kink shape on the Nauticast podcast. Jamie thinks back to his escape from River Run. He was very drunk from Catelyn's wine, and he could only recall some of what happened. Brienne had gotten him out of his cell and overcome a jailer. He leaned on Brienne to get up the endless stairs, got into a traveler's coke, and, put in, and got put into a skiff. 
Catelyn orders the portcullis of the Watergate raised, and then they were off. Jamie took a nap during the entire ordeal. But now Jamie was awake, thinking that Tyrion is going to laugh himself silly through through the, the events of his escape. Jamie asked if Brienne would like to take his irons off so he could row. No, he will stay in his chains. He figured to row all the way to King's Landing, wench. You will call me Brienne, not wench. My name is Sir Jamie, not Kingslayer. Do you deny that you slew a king? No. Do you deny your sex? If so, unlace those breeches and show me. He gave her an instant smile. I'd ask you to open your bodice, but from the look of you, that wouldn't prove much. Sir Cleos fretted. Cousin, remember your courtesies. Nagging Brienne complete, Jamie spares a stray thought about Cousin Cleos. He was Aunt Jenna Lannister's son by Eamon Frey. Eamon was scared shitless of Tywin and sided with Tywin when Walter Frey raised his banners for Riverrun and Robb Stark. Cleos looks like a weasel, is kind of a bad fighter, and is also a coward. Cleos joined in on this thing because Catelyn vowed to release him if he helped deliver Jamie to Tyrion. They'd all done a deal of vowing back in that cell, Jamie most of all. That was Lady Catelyn's price for loosing him. She had laid the point of the big wench's sword against his heart and said, Swear to me that you will never take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your brother to honor his pledge to return my daughter safe and unharmed. Swear on your honor as a knight, on your honor as a Lannister, on your honor as a sworn brother of the King's Guard. Swear it by your sister's life and your father's and your son's, by the old gods and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse, and I will have your blood." He remembered the prick of the steel through his rags as she twisted the point of the sword. Jamie thinks that the High Septon would probably look askance at a vow done by Swordpoint, and also while he's drunk, which Jamie doesn't care, of course. He is kind of mystified at why Catelyn was trusting someone she did not actually trust, but then he realizes that Catelyn was trusting Tyrion, not him. He thinks aloud that Catelyn isn't stupid. Brienne thinks she's talking about him, but Jamie replies that he wasn't. He was just talking to himself. Jamie decides to talk with Brienne then, noting that Brienne is nobly born. She is. Sel she is Selwyn Tarth's. She was the daughter of Selwyn Tarth, Lord of Evenfall. Jamie politely notes that Tarth is a ghastly rock, but why is Brienne supporting Robb Stark instead of Stannis? Well, Brienne supports Brienne serves Catelyn, but seriously, shut the fuck up, Jamie, or talk to Cleos. Brienne doesn't care to hear from monsters. Jamie hooted, oh, are there monsters here about? Hiding beneath the water, perhaps? In that thick of willows? And me, without my sword? A man who would violate his own sister, murder his king, and fling an innocent child to his death deserves no other name. Innocent? The wretched boy was spying on us. All Jamie had wanted was an hour alone with Cersei. Their journey north had been one long torment, seeming, seeing her every day, unable to touch her, knowing that Robert stumbled drunkenly into her bed every night in that great creaking wheelhouse. Tyrion had done his best to keep him in good humor, but it had not been enough. Jamie warns Brienne to be courteous when it comes to Cersei. He says this while calling her a wench for only like the fifth or sixth time in this chapter, though. Brienne states that her name is... Brienne, but Jamie wonders why she should care what a monster calls her. Instead of answering, Brienne just repeats that her name is Brienne for the second or third time. Lady Brienne? She looks so uncomfortable that Jamie sensed a weakness. Or would Sir Brienne be more to your taste? He laughed. No, I, I fear not. You could trick out a milk cow in copper and crupper, crinet and camphron and barter all in silk, but that doesn't mean you can ride her into battle. Cleo's quivers that Jamie should be nice and they shouldn't fight. But Jamie says he only quarrels with swords, not with 
words. Anyways, Jamie wants to know if every woman on Tarth is as ugly as Brienne is, which Jesus, dude. In response, Brienne says that the Sapphire Island is beautiful, but please, for God's sake, Jamie, shut the fuck up or else she's going to gag Jamie. She's rude as well, isn't she, cuz? Jamie asks her Cleos. Though she has steel in her spine, I'll grant you. Not many men dare, be, dare call me monster to my face. Though by my back they speak it freely enough, I have no doubt. Sir Cleos coughed nervously. <laughs> Lady Brienne has those lies from Catelyn Stark, no doubt. The, the Starks cannot hope to defeat you with words, sir. So, so now they make words with poison words. They did defeat me with swords, you, you chinless cretin. Jamie smiled knowingly. Men will read all sorts of things into a knowing smile if you let them. Has Cousin Cleo truly swallowed this kettle of dung, or is he striving to ingratiate himself? What do we have here? An honest muttonhead or a lick spittle? Cleos continues on by saying that Jamie is very obviously innocent at the attempted murder of Bran because he's a Kingsguard, and the Kingsguard, as everyone knows in all of Westerosi history, have never harmed children, not once ever. Jamie decides that Cleos is, in that case, a lickspittle, but he had regretted pushing Bran from that window. No, no, not the moral side of it, because, you know, who gives a shit about that? Just because Cersei wouldn't shut up about it. Cersei's plan was to frighten the boy into silence, as Cersei warned that Bran may talk when he woke up. Jamie pulled Cersei onto his lap and said they declared Bran a liar and then killed Ned Stark if it came to the worst. And what do you imagine Robert will do? Cersei asked. Let Robert do as he pleases. I'll go to I'll go to war with him if I must. If I must. The war for Cersei's cunt, the, sir, the singers will call it. Jamie, let me go, she raged, struggling to rise. Instead, he had kissed her. For a moment she resisted, but then her mouth opened under his. He remembered the taste of wine and cloves on her tongue. She gave a shudder. Her, his hand went to her bodice and yanked, tearing the silk so her breast spilled free. And for a time, the Stark boy had been forgotten. Jamie wonders if Cersei had hired the cat's ball that Catelyn had mentioned back in A Clash of Kings, but he doesn't think so because Cersei would have sent Jamie to do her child murdering for her. Back to the river, the sun was rising as the skiff passes red clay on the south bank and high rocky bluffs on the north bank. When the wind shifts, Cleos helps Brienne get the sail up. As Brienne takes the rudder, Jamie says they'd go faster if they went to Harrenhal to Tywin instead of to Tyrion. But Sansa and Arya are in King's Landing, according to Brienne, so they're going there. At that, Jamie asks Cleos for his knife, but Brienne refuses, saying that Jamie is not to be armed. Okay, fine. Jamie will have Cleos shave him bald. Why? Because everyone knows that Jamie is a beardless knight with long golden hair. He'll have a yellow beard and no hair, instead to move unawares towards King's Landing. And so Cleo shaves Jamie with a somewhat dull knife and Jamie's hair falls into the river. Some of his beard was trimmed short as well. Jamie takes a look into the water to see the visage appearing back at him. The reflection in the water was a man he did not know. Not only was he bald, but he looked as though he had aged five years in the dungeon. His face was thinner with hollows under his eyes and lines he did not remember. I don't look as much like Cersei this way. She'll hate that. At by noon, Cleos is asleep and Jamie is stretching out to watch the world go by, loving the sights and sounds of the world that was totally not a dungeon. They see some houses on poles and a river, but no people. Jamie catches the sight of silvery trout and thinks that's a really bad sign, but they keep pressing forward. And then he sees a worse omen. 
dead people floating in the water wearing Lannister crimson cloaks. That seemed like a really bad fucking sign. As they move, Jamie thinks the forks of the Trident would have been a lot more busy with lots of folks going up or down the river selling stuff, but the war had altered that significantly. Deserted villages, empty nets, and when they did meet people, they fled or watched them warily until they passed, until they passed. In terms of terrain, the Red Fork was more dangerous than met the eye, flowing slowly but full of sandbars and snags, but Brienne maneuvered around them. Jamie tries to compliment Brienne on her handling of the, of the skiff, but Brienne says she doesn't know this river, only the waters around Tarth. Cleos, the Pooh Frey, wakes up then and says, tut tut, smells like rain. Jamie thinks rain would have been great as he stinks real bad from being in the dungeons, but then Cleos sees smoke down the river. As they approach, Jamie sees a smoldering building and an oak tree with dead women hanging from the branches. The crows had scarcely started on their corpses. The thin ropes cut deeply into the soft flesh of their throats, and when the wind blew, they twisted and swayed. This was not chivalrously done, said Brienne when they were close enough to see it clearly. No true knight would condone such wanton butchery. True knights see worse every day they ride to war, wench, said Jamie, and do worse, yes. Brienne turned the rudder towards the shore. I'll leave no innocence to be food for crows. A heartless wench. Crows need to eat as well. Stay to the river and leave the dead alone, woman. Instead, Brienne lands upstream of the oak and they get out. Jamie dunks his head in the water and laughs at his less muddy reflection. He looks thinner and paler than he remembered. Brienne orders the corpses cut down from the tree and Jamie offers himself. He just needs these chains off. Brienne, though, doesn't hear him. The wench was staring up at one of the dead women. Jamie shuffled closer with small stutter steps the only kind the foot-long chain permitted. When he saw the crude, the crude sign hung around the neck of the highest corpse, he smiled. They lay with lions, he read. Oh, yes, woman, this was most unchivalrously done. But by your side, not mine, I wonder who they were, these women. Cleo says they're tavern wenches that he and the men may have kind of sort of hung out with. They fucked the sex workers, if you know what I mean, is what he's basically saying. Jamie didn't know about sex work. That was all of Tyrion's business. He was only into virtuously porking his sister like a gentleman. Jamie thinks that this is Brackenland, and that's why Lord Jonas ordered them killed. Or maybe it was Mike Piper, which Mike Mark Piper, which maybe, I guess, or Beric Dendarrion, which absolutely not, or Roose Bolton. Yeah, I could see that happening. Jamie thinks Bolton unlikely as Tywin beat him at the Green Fork. Yeah, but Roose kind of came back and took Harrenhal. Did anybody tell you about that, Jamie? Jamie liked the sound of that not at all. Brienne, he said, granting her the courtesy of the name in hopes that she might listen. So noble, Jamie. If Lord Bolton holds Harrenhal, both the Trident and the King's Road are likely watched. He thought he saw a touch of uncertainty in her big blue eyes. You are under my protection. They need to kill me. I, I shouldn't think that would trouble them much. I am as good as a fighter as you, she said defensively. I was one of King Renly's chosen seven. With his own hand, he cloaked me with the striped silk of the Rainbow Guard. The Rainbow Guard. You and six other girls, was it? A seeker once said that all maids are fair in silk. But he never met you, did he? The woman turned red. We have, graves, we have graves to dig. She went to climb the tree. Brienne cuts down the corpses as Cleos complains about caring for the bodies of the dead sex workers. But then Brienne shouts that they need to get back into the boat. She sees a sail. It takes them a minute to get into the boat, but when they do, Brienne orders Cleos to grab an oar. They move quickly through the water. Jamie sees the top of the other sail, commenting that it's mud red and watery blue in color. 
Brienne orders Cleos to row faster. The inn disappears behind them and Jamie hopes the noble Tully stopped to bury the dead girls. Jamie does not want to go back to the dungeon. Tyrion would think this of something clever to do here, but Jamie can only think to go at them with the sword. For the good part of an hour, they played peek and seek with the pursuers, sweeping around the bends and between small wooded aisles. Just when they were starting to hope that somehow they might have left behind the pursuit, the distant sail became visible again. Sir Cleos paused in a stroke. The others take them. He wiped sweat from his brow. Row, Brienne said. That's a river galley coming after us, Jamie announced after he'd watched for a while. With every stroke, it seemed to grow a little larger. Nine oars on each side, which means 18 men. More if they crowded on fighters as well as rowers, and larger sails than ours. We cannot outrun her. Sir Cleo squeaks that being, it's 18 dudes, but Jamie thinks he'll take on six Tullys at a time, though he'd prefer eight if he was unchained. P.S. Brienne, can, can you and Jamie please? No? Okay, fine. But Jamie notes that they're going to catch up as they have more rowers and probably have more like 20 to 25 people on that ship. His cousin groaned, we can hope to defeat 18. Did I say we could? The best we can hope for is to die with swords in our hands. He was perfectly sincere. Jamie Lannister had never been afraid of death. Brienne stops rowing for a moment and growls that Jamie is under her protection. Jamie thinks that seems rather cynical game-like if he had tits, of course, but she also has no tits. So look, I'm just the messenger here conveying what is in this chapter, folks. I'm, all this misogyny is not coming from the internal mind and heart of, of myself. The river galley, galley catches up with the skiff pretty quickly as Tully bros come up on deck. Jamie notes the archers and he hates archers. Then he sees the river run captain of guards, Sir Robin Riger, who emerges on deck. When the boats are only 50 yards apart, Jamie yells across the water, asking if Sir Robin had come to wish Jamie Godspeed. No. Come to take you back, Kingslayer, Sir Robin Riger Beller. How is it that you have lost your golden hair? I hope to blind, blind my enemies with the sheen off my head. It worked well enough for you. Sir Robin was unamused. The distance between skiff and galley had shrunk to 40 yards. Throw your oars and your weapons into the river, and no one need be harmed. Cleos tells Jamie to tell Robin that Catelyn sent them, and Jamie does so, but it doesn't do any good as Robin declares that Catelyn is not the one actually in charge of Riverrun. As Robin says this, four archers join Robin up on the deck. He orders Jamie to throw his sword into the river. In response, Jamie says, look, bro, I, I don't have a sword, but he'd be happy to kill the shit out of Robin if he did. In response, four arrows come from the tele ship as Brienne angles the skiff across a bend in the Red Fork. The sail cracks as Brienne shifts the tiller, the sail rippling. Jamie watched her eyes. Pretty eyes, he thought, and calm. Hmm. He knew how to read a man's eyes. He knew what fear looked like. She is determined, not desperate. Thirty yards behind, the galley was entering the bend. Sir Cleos, take the tiller, the wench commanded. Kingslayer, take an oar and keep us off the rocks. As my lady commands. An oar was not a sword, but a blade could break a man's face if well swung, and the shaft could be used to parry. Oh, Brienne has pretty eyes, Jamie. Weird that you're noticing little things like that. So, so weird. Cleo shoves an oar at Jamie and scrambles to the tiller and turns hard away from the bluff. They move from sunlight to shadow, but then the boat rocks, and Jamie feels the skiff rocking and hears a splash in the water. He turns to see Brienne scrambling up a bluff and then climbing up that sheer rock face. Jamie thinks this foolish as he orders Cleos to keep steering as Robin Riker's ship turns towards them from the bend. 
The sharp turns are making it hard for the archers, but Jamie knows they'll adjust sooner or later. Jamie sees Brienne is halfway up the cliff face and he decides to distract her and buy her time. Jamie decided to see if the old man's pride would make him stupid. Sir Robin, he shouted, hear me for a moment. Sir Robin raised a hand and his archers lowered their bows. Say what you will, Kingslayer, but say it quickly. The skiff swung through a litter of broken stones as Jamie called out, I know a better way to settle this. Single combat, you and I. I was not born this morning, Lannister. No, but you're like to die this afternoon. Jamie raised his hand so the other could see the manacles. I'll fight you in chains. What could you fear? But Robin has his orders, and his orders are to bring Jamie back to River Run. He orders his bowmen into action, but then a series of pebbles starts falling all around them. And then a huge boulder detaches from the cliff and comes crashing down the bluff, splitting in two with one chunk snapping the mast and the other drilling a hole into the hull. Jamie watches as men start abandoning ship, realizing that some of them couldn't swim and laughs because Jamie is on a redemption path. Jamie and Cleos leave the archers behind, and Jamie thinks he'd be rid of Brienne and would get out of chains, but then Cleos shouts. Jamie looks up and sees Brienne moving across the cliff top. She jumps off the rock and forms into a graceful dive. When she hits the water, Cleos angles the skiff towards Jamie, still clutching his oar, thinking that he can hit her and be free of her. Instead, Jamie found himself stretching the oar out over the water. Brienne grabbed hold, and Jamie pulled her in. As he helped her into the skiff, water ran from her hair and dripped from her sodden clothing to the pool on the deck. On the deck, She's even uglier wet. Who could have thought it possible? You're a bloody stupid wench, Jamie told her. We could have sailed on without you. I suppose you expect me to thank you. I want none of your thanks, Kingslayer. I swore an oath to bring you safe to King's Landing. And you actually mean to keep it? Jamie gave her his brightest smile. Now there's a wonder. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords. Jamie won. I have many, many thoughts. If you couldn't tell already about Jamie's first chapter, about Jamie Lannister, the person, Jamie Lannister, the idea, Jamie Lannister, the book that A Storm of Swords is totally about. I'm kidding. But we'll get to all of that throughout A Storm of Swords. I am just loving the fact, though, that we are actually here covering a Jamie chapter. And I love that we're doing it with two special people. What did you both think of this chapter? Well, I guess you were right what you said earlier, Jeff. Jamie is objectively the best POV in A Song of Ice and Fire. No. I I never quite fell in love with Jamie the way a lot of people do. And maybe that'll change as we go through A Storm of Swords and I see him through your eyes. But even if not, it doesn't really matter because his chapters are so well written that I love them anyway. And this chapter is a perfect beginning. George covers all his bases without tipping his hand as to where he's taking this character. It starts with a lighter tone than most Jamie chapters, gets very dark in the middle, and wraps up with a thrilling action sequence designed to make you keep reading, like the cliffhanger in the prologue. Already in Storm of Swords, we're seeing this assured confidence in George's writing as the story comes to him faster than ever. It feels like there's nothing he can't do. What did you think of this chapter, Shiloh? I remember on my first read of these books, hitting the Jamie chapters and literally saying out loud, God damn it, George, stop making me like this guy. <laughs> it's been interesting being on my like now seventh-ish reread, how much my views on characters in general have changed and how these chapters don't really make me like him more anymore. He, he is a very layered character and there's more to tease out kind of every time I go through it because George writes him very very well that's well well said I think you know my first thought when I opened up the when I turned the page from the Storm of Swords prologue or 
In reality, Herb Roy Dotrice finished the prologue and transitioned to Jamie was an audible. <laughs> oh, Jamie. I hated Jamie in the first two books. Why would George inflict his point of view on us readers? That's what I was thinking anyways. Don't think that anymore, as you could probably tell. Because what George does with Jamie is reintroduce him to us as readers. It's kind of a soft retcon of the character we at least knew in A Game of Thrones. Because, as we've talked about before, Jamie wasn't planned as a point of view character. Per the pitch letter, Jamie was originally envisioned as a just straight up fucking villain killing his way to the Iron Throne. And that is the version of Jamie from book one A Game of Thrones. But by the final Catelyn A Clash of Kings chapter, and really especially here, George kind of reboots Jamie. I love the way that George kind of symbolizes this through Jamie shaving off those beautiful curls uh, on the river and then dunking his head into the river. Please tell me that isn't George baptizing Jamie to reader's eyes, visualing how we're supposed to reevaluate Jamie from the original impression we had of the man. And soon, that very hand, the one that pushed Bran from the window, will be gone too. What George was kind of asking us is... Do you recognize the man in front of you? Will he be the same man at the end of the story? And that we has that dynamic integrated into the first chapter, first Jamie chapter into A Storm of Swords, makes it an exciting start of our journey with Jamie Lannister together with you all. It's a very interesting chapter in terms of transition, in terms of transitioning us away from what we used to see Jamie in terms of a, a really a new character. And I want to start with the transition into this chapter from the prologue. George is great at sequencing, one chapter playing off the next in interesting ways. He makes use of the gap, like the silence in between songs on an album, or the gutters, the space in between comic panels. Chet's prologue ended on a nightmarish cliffhanger, the arrival of ice demons and their zombie army, ready to wreck shit, and then boom, we're drifting downriver in the pale pink dawn, a breeze tugging at Jamie like a lover's fingers. Everything has changed. The setting, the imagery, the tone, it all feels like the opposite of the previous chapter. We were sucked into hell, and now we've been spat back out into something resembling paradise. It's like a palate cleanser, washing away the taste of Chet's POV, recalibrating our senses so we can get used to Jamie's headspace. As I said last week, when that third horn blast sounded north of the wall, it felt like nothing else in the world mattered anymore, like everything was about to change. Yet, now here we are, with the river running eternally, the birds chirping like nothing's wrong. As your namesake Jeff said on the throne show, it often comforts me to think that even in the war's darkest days, in most places in the world, absolutely nothing is happening. The danger for Jamie is all too human the war, and the emptiness inside him. Even if the others never returned, he'd have to face them. The jarring shift in tone is appropriate for his character. Not only does the book kind of feel like it's been reborn, but Jamie feels that way too. He's emerged from the dark cave beneath River Run, a womb, a crucible for his rebirth. He's getting used to the world again, and we have to reacquaint ourselves with Westeros through a new pair of eyes. I think that's perfectly said. It's a new set of eyes and it's and it's kind of being a palate cleanser from the prologue is an exactly correct way to to approach this chapter you know in, in terms of genre george loves to do these kind of like switches in the narrative because we went from the brutal evil character study of chet which transitions to horror at, at chapter's end and then here at jamie's chapter it's all the beautiful scenery and then an almost swashbuckling adventure story by the end of the chapter it could have felt like whiplash but somehow it doesn't to me and i think the the main one of the main reasons why is the character of jamie himself because part of what makes Jamie so dynamic to me 
is how he starts at the level that readers expect him to be at. He's a mockery of chivalry. Wait, wait, Shiloh, don't get mad at me. Stay with me. I promise. I will I will bring it home at the end. JB's got the looks, right? The skills, the skills to thrill, and in a society that makes him the model chivalric knight, right? Well, no, Jamie also has that less than stellar personality that goes along with that. The one where he's constantly insulting Brienne, unchivalrously as cousin Cleo's chides Jamie, or like a fucking misogynistic jerk, as we find out throughout this chapter. <laughs> I'm 100% with you on this one, buddy. Um, in fact, if people have about yeah, three-ish hours to kill, the latest Learn Hands episode covers the whole question of chivalry and how Jamie ain't it pretty well. <laughs> If it's I really say so good myself. that you. No, it's it's awesome, and I think it's really good that you come here coming from that episode because that was such a good episode. I, I love that episode. In fact, I'm going to listen to it again one of these days. <laughs> and I, I think like what you're saying, and, and what I was saying is kind of a major, major com- component of why Jamie works here immediately after the prologue because we've seen Chet's red boils, his ugliness, felt his rage, and seen his alienation from everyone around him north of the wall. And then when we get to Jamie, he's got you know, like I said, the skills, the looks, but he's as embittered as Chet. Now. The main difference for Jamie, though, is that his embitterment over chivalry is not like that kind of like got stomped down his entire life. His main embitterment comes from the cynical sort, kind of the optimist who believed in something fiercely once, who is bitterly disappointed by it. Again, I am offended by any potential correlations to my own life experiences, and I'm shocked, Emmett, that you would even suggest and think this. Why do I keep accusing you of that? I don't know. I don't know what's wrong with me. Everyone stop and leave Jeff alone immediately. (laughs) So after we've recovered from the shock of how the prologue ended and the shock of Jamie being our POV now, next up is the shock of what's actually happening in this chapter. Why are Jamie and company in a boat on a river? When last we saw these characters, Catelyn was calling for Brienne's sword. We might think Catelyn's about to execute Jamie on the spot. But George set up Catelyn's desperate desire to get her daughters back, especially after she hears that Theon killed Bran and Rickon. Cleos told her about Tyrion's public promise to exchange her daughters for Jaime. Gradually, we realize that Catelyn is trying to make that deal. She has sprung Jaime from jail and sent him on his way to King's Landing. That is kind of a big deal, as we'll see starting next week in Catelyn 1. Here, though, Jaime doesn't dwell on the politics of his release. He's alienated from the power structures of Westeros, even those that he's a part of, as we'll see throughout the rest of the book. So he's not thinking, ah, this is good for the Lannisters and bad for the Starks. That's not really what he cares about. I mean, to be fair, he's just recovering from months in a cell, not to mention getting drunk off his ass at the end there. So everything for him is sensory. He only remembers bits and pieces. Brienne knocking out the guard, Catelyn giving all the orders. When Jaime tried to escape previously, it was with a sword in hand. This time, he slept right through it. And this sets up the dynamic between freedom and control running through Jamie's chapters. He was dragged out of his cell rather than escaping. And even now, he wears chains. So has he truly been set free? He spends a lot of the book as a passive or passive-ish character being kind of handed off from one captor to another, offers being made to trade him. Almost like he's in the damsel position of his own story and Brienne's his knightly protector. He tries to claim the active protector role a couple of times, but it doesn't work out so well for him. There's that pointed example of when he tries to draw a sword after his hand is cut off and tries to get away, and it's just a hopeless failure, and all the all the mummers are laughing at him. He's wearing literal chains, but also metaphorical ones. He's imprisoned by the past, his devotion to Cersei, and of course his reputation, the eye of the beholder. 
Ultimately, he has imprisoned himself. As Jeff said, Jamie is a cynical man. He has learned not to invest himself emotionally. We see that in how he thinks about the oath he swore Catelyn. He doesn't consider it binding, remembering only the steel of the sword as Catelyn pressed it against him. That's all that really matters. Looks like the hostage trade might be in trouble. Then again, as Jamie thinks, Catelyn is trusting him as little as she dares, putting her faith in Tyrion instead. Who would trust me? I have shit for honor. I broke my oaths. As it turns out, this internal drama is the whole point of Jamie's story in this book. Actually getting him to King's Landing is an anticlimax. By the time they arrive, their mission is moot, Sansa's gone, and Catelyn's dead. So the stakes become more personal, even existentialist. It's about who Jamie is by the end of the journey, compared to how he starts here. And I think this is one reason that even though I, I go back and forth on whether or not he's actually on a redemption arc and whether I even like him that much, <laughs> he's still fascinating to me because he does have such a clear arc, whether it's a redemption arc or not. Um, and it's going to be super interesting to see what George ultimately does with him in the Winds of Winter when we get it next week. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I go back and forth on that kind of thing too. And I'm starting to think maybe it, it's less about whether we like Jamie or society likes Jamie and more about whether just Jamie likes Jamie because Jamie doesn't like mm. Jamie very much. You know, he, he <laughs> makes that joke that, oh, you'd think my word as a Lannister was not good enough, but that's really how he feels. Jamie doesn't believe in oaths anymore. He doesn't believe in the High Septon, he thinks, nor the gods he claims to serve, nor anything really beyond Cersei. We started to learn why in Clash of Kings with his story about the Mad King murdering the Starks in front of him. But as Jamie admitted, that still doesn't explain how he became the man he is. And what I love about how George writes Jamie is how he reflects his compartmentalization. So much is buried in the subtext because so much is buried in Jamie's subconscious. George hides his depths from the audience at first to reflect how Jamie is hiding from himself. His true feelings are connected to secrets he cannot let slip, secrets about both Eris and Cersei. He thinks of himself as an island because that denies any vulnerability. When his hand is cut off, he can't deny vulnerability any longer. Absolutely. And, and though the end point is moot by the time Jamie reaches King's Landing in a Storm of Swords, there is something we learn in later chapters, which is that Jamie intends to keep his oath. Not because he's some sort of oath keeper, but because it'd be real fucking funny if he kept his oath, right guys? Jamie had decided that he would return Sansa and the younger girl as well if she could be found. It was not like to win him back his lost honor, but the notion of keeping faith when they all expected betrayal amused him more than he could say. But even in that later Jamie chapter, Jamie's inner thought process masks what's, masks what's really at work in Jamie's chapters. Because Jamie uses his bitter, cutting sarcasm and cynicism as internal and external shields to a world that doesn't really make sense to him. Which is interesting because Tyrion does the same thing, but because the world makes too much sense to him. Right. It's so logical for Tyrion that the world is the way that it is to him because that's what he grew up as experienced. Mm -hmm. And Jamie is like, this doesn't make sense to me. It's just, ah, I just have to put up these shields and these barriers against, uh, against the world outside. Because when Jamie was young and idealistic, he wanted to be Sir Arthur Dane, a knight in shining armor, abiding by the oaths of chivalry and knighthood and the best ideals of the King's Guard. But now that Jamie has been bitterly disappointed by reality not meeting his expectations, his defense mechanism is to pose as the shittiest person you'd ever meet. Again, stop making comparisons to me. But as you were saying, the journey is more important than the destination for Jamie's character. And the journey is all about stripping away that veneer to get to the bathhouse where all defenses are stripped away to reveal the raw truth in person beneath that veneer. 
For me, it's an utterly thrilling story, but the one central dynamic of the story is oaths, what they mean and what value we put into them. But George wouldn't be as interested in this dynamic unless there was a dramatic foil to cut away the veneer, a person who Jamie absolutely does not like one bit. Never love, not love, but those eyes. God, those eyes are so beautiful. I mean, she's so ugly, but those eyes, those eyes. Those dreamy blue (laughs) eyes. Yeah, what everyone loves in Jamie's chapters, no matter how you feel about him, is his relationship with Brienne. It's some of George's best character work. And what makes it such an engaging dynamic is that it's both obvious and subtle. The deeper currents of connection are as profound as they are because of how immediately, and hilariously, they butt heads here. Long before they change each other's lives, they just piss each other off. Jamie and Brienne are a couple right out of screwball comedy. Screwball comedies were popular in the Great Depression era and have been influential ever since on modern romantic comedies. They spoofed romantic plots by emphasizing fast-paced conversation and farcical situations. The romance emerged gradually out of that humor, rather than being an earnest seduction from the start. There's often a class element in screwball comedies, with the rich presented as idle and leisurely. Brienne is highborn, of course, but Jamie mistakes her for a big, strong peasant woman at first, so that dynamic is in there. You've got your roguish male lead, a fail son of immense privilege. You've got your no-nonsense female lead just trying to do her job. They're the perfect odd couple. Jamie's smiling, Brienne is scowling. She's rowing hard, he's lying back and looking at the trees. (laughs) Made for each other. They bounce off each other, talk past each other, do everything they can to avoid vulnerability with each other. Yet in the process, they fall for each other. And this is the classic screwball structure. Enemies to lovers, as they call it in the fanfic world. Here at the beginning, they're both operating strictly on the surface with each other. Jamie mocks Brienne for not living up to beauty standards, for not looking how he thinks a woman ought to look. More specifically, she doesn't look like Cersei, the only woman Jamie's ever had sex with, his gold standard for all women. Jamie pictures Brienne in one of Cersei's silk gowns, thinking it would be like dressing up a cow. These vicious insults are the face Jamie shows not only the world, but himself. Under the surface, something else is going on. Why does Jamie picture Brienne in a dress? At all. Why does he take note of not only her calf muscles like cords of wood, but also her pretty blue eyes? Because no matter what he says, or consciously thinks, he's attracted to her. As Shiloh said, at some level, Jamie is the damsel in distress, and Brienne is the knight whose strong biceps he clings to while he flutters his eyelashes. <laughs> that also fits with screwball comedies, in which characters often cross-dress or impersonate each other, wearing a variety of masks. Jamie starts off the book with strict gender roles in mind, calling Brienne my lady and then wench. We are different, men and women, and you're lesser. But over the course of the book, he comes to realize that this distinction is largely at least a social construct, one that has made them both miserable. And so he will decide to try and be less miserable, get outside the things he's taken for granted and make something new, something better. That goes hand in hand with opening up to Brienne. Here, though, he cannot deal with his subconscious attraction to her, the anti-Cersei, so he externalizes it as mockery. No way I could be attracted to a freak like you. Right. And I mean, like, there is a twisted version of chivalry inherent in Jamie's fixation on Cersei throughout this chapter and his successive chapters and the external, internally stated disregard for Brienne. Jamie notes later that he left sex workers for Tyrion because Cersei was all he needed. That mental thought invokes the thought of kind of monogamous, chivalrous love, doesn't it? Albeit one which is 
quite twisted from its recognized form. Jamie almost thinks about Cersei like a wife, a bride, the one and only that he has sworn to be with. Almost like Lancelot and Guinevere. Mm, that's a great comparison. And in, <laughs> in Jamie's memory, he was willing to go to war with Ned Stark or Robert Baratheon over his sister, which invokes really all sorts of weird chivalrous feelings when it comes to, to Jamie's feelings. What, what I wonder with all of these Brienne is so ugly statements and thoughts is Jamie putting up barriers so as not to be tempted towards cheating on Cersei. It's almost like he's overcompensating with the insults to shield his heart from being stolen away by this blue-eyed hottie. Of course, his fidelity to Cersei is twisted by, you know, the incest part of it, but it wouldn't be Jamie without his expression of chivalry to be tied up with something not quite right. For her part, though, Cersei is not going to have that same fidelity to Jamie that he has for her, but I'll save some of those thoughts towards the end of this, this chat that we're going to have tonight. Later in this book, Jamie will pose the question of why can we be Targaryens to Cersei, which Cersei dis will dismiss due to Tywin, who, you know, did marry his cousin after all. But I think that all begs the question. So this is, I've talked so much about Cersei. What does Brienne think about Jamie? What about Brienne? Yeah, Brienne, for her part, <laughs> resents Jamie even more than he resents her. Their relationship begins with Brienne telling Jamie to shut the fuck up. Quit laughing at the world. <laughs> Quit enjoying yourself. Brienne has no interest in his rebirth. Jamie may think scowls suit Brienne more than smiles, but we saw a smile light up her face when Renly made her one of his rainbow guard. We saw her naive belief in the stories and songs. We saw her grief for Renly. We saw her sorrowful solitude in River Run. This hostility is new, and it's inspired by Jamie. Here's the twist on the screwball formula. The male lead isn't just roguish. He's not like Cary Grant wandering the country or something. He's a child-killing, sister-fucking oathbreaker. And the initial distaste between the couple is philosophical as much as it is personal. Brienne loathes Jamie for his crimes. She wants him in chains. Metaphorical societal chains as well as literal ones. She doesn't even think of him as a person. Not really. Instead, as she says, she thinks of him as a monster. The Kingslayer. It's only when she calls him that that he shifts from calling her my lady to wench. Jamie is so used to being dehumanized that he dehumanizes everyone else. He's pure alienation. Like Chet, he learned only how to hit back. Brienne tells him to call him by her true name. And that's all he wants too, to be seen as a person again. Even a bad person, Jamie, instead of the Kingslayer. Well, why shouldn't she call him the Kingslayer, she asks. Didn't he kill a king? Isn't that accurate? Well, sure, he says, but she's a woman and still doesn't like being called wench. Moreover, if he's such a monster, what does she care? My words only hurt because they're coming from another human being, like you. Jamie is expressing deep pain in the most crude and juvenile way possible. <laughs> if you call me names, well, I'll call you names. <laughs> Jamie senses that Brienne's weak spot is her gender presentation. She wants to be a knight, but isn't allowed to. He zeroes in on that to distract from his own weak spots. And in between them is Cleos Frey, the hapless third leg of the triangle. The Jamie Brienne dynamic exposes the holes in social norms, how they fail to match up with individuals. Cleos tries to uphold those norms and fails over and over again. <laughs> and because we never get into Cleos's head, George leaves us to wonder just how much of it does he actually mean? Is he just upset that Jamie isn't following the chivalric script? Or, as Jamie himself wonders, does he really believe all of it, including the demonstrably untrue parts? <laughs> right. It's an interesting little moment where he's wondering, Cleos, are you aware of your own bullshit and you're just playing along? Or are you 
are you so deep you don't even realize a lie when it's coming out of your mouth? And that's just, Jamie's just been kind of so embittered after years of that kind of conversation. Even as Jamie insults Brienne for challenging him, part of him finds her honesty refreshing. Most people only call me a monster behind my back. That's because most people Jamie knows are like Cleos, polite to his face, which only makes him hate them more. They're hypocrites, they're ignorant lickspittles, as he thinks. Cleos defends Jamie from Brienne's accusations. The Starks could never defeat such a great warrior with swords, so they do it with lies. But, as Jamie thinks, the Starks did defeat him with swords. Why do you think I've been jail for the whole last book? And he did indeed <laughs> throw Bran from the window. He prefers Brienne's truth, even though she hates him, to Cleos's lies, even though Cleos is kissing up to him. Jamie keeps those thoughts to himself, of course. He gives a knowing smile, letting Cleos read whatever he wants into it. That's how Jamie operates. The only person with whom he has ever been intimate is Cersei. Their power dynamic is complicated. We'll see that in King's Landing, and we see it in this little flashback here. Jamie kicks things off physically, and is blunt and aggressive in terms of how he talks about Cersei's body. But Cersei really seems like the one in charge. Jamie only threw Bran because he thought she'd want him to, and regrets it afterward when she complains. He'd go to war against Robert and Ned and anyone else just to be with her. He would have killed Bran in his bed for her if she'd told him to. She knows that, and has made use of it. Once again, George is turning romantic tropes on their head. Robert fought a rebellion for his lost love. Look how that turned out. Same applies to Jamie. His all-consuming chivalric romance is with his own twin sister, a narcissistic hive mind that has led to murder and war. As he thinks when he spilled open Cersei's bodice, the Stark boy was forgotten. Sex with his mirror image keeps the bad thoughts at bay. Whereas Brienne's bodice doesn't distract him. She makes him think consciously about all of it, and he hates that. So Brienne <laughs> and Cersei are the two poles of Jaime's arc. Which one will he be with? More importantly, which one will he be like? Jaime asks for a knife. Brienne thinks he's trying to escape, but he wants only to turn the blade on himself, cutting away his golden Lannister locks. He doesn't want to be recognized in this state. This isn't how he thinks of himself. This isn't the man Cersei loves, and who am I but the man Cersei loves? But cutting his hair only further separates him from her, from his whole Lannister identity. A louse scuttles out of the hair, and Jaime crushes it. The past is dead, and the man looking back at him from the river doesn't look much like Cersei anymore. He does not know who he is now. It's a fantastic point. Cersei would hate the way Jaime looks now, and she will comment as much when they actually reunite later in A Storm of Swords. And that flows well with the idea inherent in Jaime's and Cersei's relationship, that Cersei's main interest in Jaime is an expression of narcissistic self-love. But in keeping with some of my opening remarks, I think Jamie is supposed to look less like the man readers knew in the first two books, because here he appears ugly, disheveled, older, and bald. Jamie had lost the look of chivalry, the fable Lannister beauty. He thinks that it's for his survival now, so that he won't be recognized as Jamie Lannister. But I maintain it's a signal from George about the change in reader perception about Jamie. Jamie feels like he is eschewing or has lost the trappings of his power, the physicality that he once brought. In essence, he's becoming less of a knight in, charming, in shining armor and appearance. His physical change dovetails so well with his bitter cynicism about chivalry. True knights see and do worse every single time they ride to war, as we'll discuss in a moment. But I like to think that George is stripping away the shell surrounding Jamie, the stark beauty that surrounded him to reveal the person underneath. But that is a dynamic that is going to come later in this book. For now, there are feeding crows and humanity to attend to. 
So this chapter starts with some beautiful imagery that leads into some comedic dialogue, but then the tone starts to change. What makes this different from most romantic comedies is that our odd couple is traveling through an active war zone. The horror intrudes slowly, just like in the last book when it was Arya getting deeper and deeper into the hell of the Riverlands at war. Jamie takes some passing trout as a bad omen, uh, that's the Tully sigil, but then he sees a corpse float past, wearing Lannister crimson. Suddenly taking the fish as an omen seems so silly, like when Illyrio makes fun of how attached Westerosi nobles are to their symbols, oh you all think you actually are lions or fish or whatever. The corpse is a more blunt symbol, that is unmistakably who we are. Jamie has been reborn, that could be his old self floating past, tied to his family name, his family colors. Once, Jamie was a shining young prodigy. Once, these rivers were full of life, the people of Westeros traveling, trading, entertaining each other. Now, there are villages without villagers, and everyone they do see keeps their distance. That's how Jamie's felt his entire adult life. The empty land represents Eris's atrocities, as Jamie says in his next chapter, but it also reflects how Jamie feels inside, alienated, walled off from humanity. At this point in the podcast, it's worth again re worth again once again re-emphasizing that the dead bodies of abandoned villagers and suspicious villagers wouldn't have been possible if not for Tywin's illegal and immoral war. I just have to bring that up every single time we're going to talk about the war in the Riverlands. <laughs> Still, we can reasonably assume that this dead Lannister floating in the river was probably a casualty of Edmure Tully's heroic yet fateful defense of the forest just a brief while ago. At the start of this a Storm of Stories, if you open up the book, you'll see that George has a. a what's he called, caveat on chronology or something like that, where he notes that the early chapters from A Storm of Swords take place at the chronological end of a, end of a Clash of Kings, especially towards uh, those chapters that are occurring on the Blackwater. So we can assume that this is a casualty from that battle, from that earlier battle, which occurs in, in Catelyn's earlier chapters. JB wonders if this is someone that he knew, and there's no hint in the text that it is, though, and I think that's perfectly fine, great even. Because in the end, this War of the Five Kings will kill tens of thousands by the sword and hundreds of thousands through starvation and exposure when winter comes. Also, in the end, this war, no matter how justified on the Stark side, will rob people of life and make them bloated corpses alone and nameless. And that feeds into what they find next. A live oak full of dead women. The beauty of nature contrasted with the ugliness of human nature. These are the literal fruits of the war an unshakable horror image designed to generate our outrage, as it does for Brienne. She's been focused on her mission, I will return with the Stark girls or not at all. But now she stops dead to care for strangers. And that's Brienne in a nutshell. Same thing happens in A Feast for Crows, with her big no chance and no choice moment. That's her stepping aside from her mission to save the Stark girl, save the princess like a knight should, to care for strangers. Jamie mocked her for being a woman dressed like a knight, but here we see that Brienne upholds the values of chivalry more than most knights. As Jamie tells her, the Tullys would never stop to bury these women, and true knights see and do worse than this in every war. This bit does some interesting work with continuing the themes of knighthood and chivalry, but also showing us that both sides are kind of assholes, not just the one. <laughs> Rob might be a better man than Tywin, but the men who follow them don't necessarily have their same attitudes and compunctions. And the small folk get caught in the middle of their fights, which we've already seen from the Arya chapters in the last book. And George emphasizes that in how he paces the scene. First we see the corpses, and then we learn which side was responsible. So he's got us. We've already absorbed the horror and can't excuse it. 
Imagine the war, not from Rob's perspective or Jamie's or Brienne's, but from the perspective of these women. They were living their lives, kneeling to Jonas Bracken if he rode through, doing him homage as their overlord. Then the Lannisters came to town. What were these women supposed to do? Refuse them service and die on the spot for it? <laughs> for all they knew, the Brackens were about to fall, and these were their new masters. Even if not, keeping the soldiers happy while they're here is the best way to stay alive, to help yourself and your loved ones. These women weren't Lannister agents. They were killed for the crime of staying alive. Same thing happened at Harrenhal. Those civilians who helped Vargo out when he served the Lannisters are punished for it when he switches sides to the Starks. Whoever killed these women probably didn't think they were actually disloyal, like on a level that's important to the war. It was more about sending a message to anyone who might come along. Fuck the Lannisters. That's a message we might agree with, but it's being meted out on people who had nothing to do with the Lannisters burning out the Brackens. No wonder so many small folk prefer Beric Dondarrion, or give up on their leaders altogether. When this is how your leaders respond to an invasion, by holding you responsible for it instead of themselves, why believe in them? There is special contempt reserved for women who use sex to stay alive. I think you can see a link to Jamie's nasty attitude towards Brienne. This is what that hatred for women outside the norm looks like when converted from words to actions, put in service of a merciless power structure that sees individuals as pawns in a zero-sum struggle. Cleos represents that conventional wisdom. This is too much trouble to take for such women, and I won't sully my sword to do so. It's a cautionary tale for Jamie, but also one for Brienne, because now she sees what her own hatred of Lannisters looks like in its worst form. If Rob's righteous crusade could lead us here, as Charlo said, maybe Brienne's righteous loathing for the Kingslayer isn't actually the best way to look at Jamie Lannister. But beyond the metaphors, these are still people who were murdered. And Jamie stays totally detached from that reality, while Brienne engages in it. Jamie's more focused on himself, naturally, his ongoing rebirth, <laughs> laughing like a child at the cold touch of the water but sobered by the realization that he is thinner and weaker than before the dungeon. A changed man. On reread, we know why Jamie tends to detach himself from violence, the traumatic memory of killing Eris, and also why he did it. And it's from a lifetime in battle. Remember, he doesn't name horses because it's too difficult when they die. On first read, though, we don't have any of these kind of cues for sympathy for Jamie. <laughs> really, we're just kind of waiting for him to break at this point and, and to snap and to act like a human being. Right, and we sort of get there by chapter's end, but we don't totally get there until we get later into Jamie's arc in A Storm of Swords. I, I think one of the things that, that caught my attention from this part of the chapter is that Cleos recognizes this in from when his soldiers came through on their way to River Run, and I think that shrouds this these murders in even greater horror, because what I kind of suspect is that this inn was specifically targeted because Cleos's party visited and what was Cleos's party going to River Run after all? Uh, ostensibly, it was a diplomatic mission to Alderaan, uh, River Run. Uh, of course, <laughs> the Lannister goons in Cleos's party were Tyrion's creatures and did try to spring Jaime free under that diplomatic banner. But still, the Brackens or Boltons or Malisters didn't know about that betrayal when they probably came upon this inn. They wanted to make themselves feel better by spilling innocent blood. And I think Jaime bears some responsibility here. After Gregor and Amory Lorch, it was Jamie's swords that struck the first blows into the Riverlands, smashing the Tully army near the Golden Tooth. And Cleos's men had duplicitously come to Riverrun with the mission to free Jamie, anyways. 
In part, Jamie's arc in A Storm of Swords is a reflection of where past blame and responsibility truly lie, and what that responsibility projects forward in the future tense. But hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves with all of that serious shit and talk. There's swashbuckling fun to be had. <laughs> right? Yeah, George doesn't linger on the horror in this chapter. There is plenty of that to come for later Jamie chapters. He wants to get us there step by step. The boat chase restores the breezier tone, even as the stakes get higher. This is just the fun part of the chapter. You could totally film this with Yakety Sax playing under it, and it would, <laughs> it would work. And d- despite Jamie thinking that Tyrion would have smart-ass quips that he doesn't, he definitely gets pretty smart-ass and funny here. <laughs> Absolutely. You can you can feel the soundtrack picking up, and there's just this, this aura of, like, <laughs> comedic disarray and jamie just sitting back and detached from it all they're outnumbered by their pursuers who have a faster boat and the situation seems hopeless but jamie just jokes because he's ready to die and this is of course self-loathing really masking his courage jamie's bravado is rooted in his cynical certainty that nothing in life really matters anyway so why not die ironically his envisioned last stand is right out of the stories and songs it's the same reason he hates archers because they rob him of a straight fight Jamie never found anything to believe in beyond a glorious death, even as he makes fun of, you know, kind of all the structures behind that. He was shattered by harsh realities, whereas Brienne is determined to transcend them. She has the true courage, as Jamie acknowledges beneath the insults when he calls her the Hound with Teats. He's under her protection, as she says. Once again, she's the knight, and he's the damsel. The pursuers catch up in the river galley that George describes wonderfully like a great dragonfly buzzing over the water. Robin Riger is in command, and Jamie taunts him. It's the only language he knows, the empty swagger of fighting men, even though Sir Robin is past his prime and Jamie's skills have gone to rust, so this is all talk. Brienne tries to speak more earnestly. Oh, this is a lawful exchange of captives. But Robin points out the inconvenient truth. Catelyn's not in charge at River Run. None of this is lawful. Jamie and Brienne are outlaws now, and so Brienne has to use all her wit and strength to save them, instead of accepting death like Jamie. But he still helps out. As Cleos gapes uselessly, Jamie realizes he has to distract Sir Robin and his men so Brienne can spring the trap. So Jamie taunts Robin again, but this time it's with a purpose. This time it's not just empty bravado, it's a performance of bravado as a diversion. And it works. Brienne knocks down the boulder in a supreme display of badassery. That took timing and quick thicking and just intense raw strength. Jamie laughs as he's been doing all chapter. Everything's coming up Millhouse. The gods are good after all. It's a beautiful day with no one after him anymore, and he's even gotten rid of Brienne. Or has he? She swan dives after them, suddenly graceful, nothing like he would have expected. Maybe that's part of why he lets her back into the boat. It's this perfect little moment that sums up Jamie's relationship to Brienne and his story in this book. His conscious brain is going full Kingslayer. To hell with this wench. I've been getting ready to escape all chapter, and I was never going to keep my oath. Time to get rid of her for Cersei. Right? But another part of him knows he owes Brienne. And even more than that, he knows she just did something amazing. Impressive. Like a knight. She's everything he wants to be, so he reaches out to her. Literally. She swore an oath and means to keep it. He remembers what that was like. Even as Brienne despises him and calls him the Kingslayer, she's giving him hope, stirring something inside of him he thought was gone forever. You can see a parallel to Sandor and Sansa in the previous book, a moment of devotion that inspires transformation in a broken man. The songs and stories are coming true after all. 
just not in the way young Jamie ever would have expected. So true. I mean, I love that final thought of Jamie in this chapter. And there's a wonder. Because Jamie had spent the entire chapter mocking Brienne's conception of knights and chivalry. He knows the real truth behind it, that all, the truth that it's all lies, pretty ribbons around swords that still kill you dead. Vows that are routinely broken by knights in service to lords or their own needs and wants, and their safety, their purses, their coin. But then he's confronted by Brienne, a person who embodies all of the values that Jamie once aspired to. Brienne intends to keep her vow to bring Jamie to safety, to King's Landing. Now, Brienne could have ducked out, sought her own safety, headed back to Tarth after abandoning ship. Instead, she chose to save Jamie's life. She chose her vow to safeguard a monster over an easier path. That's a wonder to Jamie. He's only ever seen the hypocrisy inherent in the system. And now he's confronted with a true believer, someone who lives the ideals he once valued. It's a wonder to Jamie because he's facing the actualization of an ideal. And he's going to be on a long, long journey with that living ideal in Brienne. But while he extends the paddle to her now, the sword is going to come out sooner or later, which is totally not a dick metaphor. <laughs> of course not. George, George is, is above that sort of thing. He doesn't make dick jokes in every other chapter. Of course not. Of course not. <laughs> Moving on to a foreshadowing and groundwork for this chapter. Cleos mentions something. Cleos has kind of more recent information than Jamie because Jamie's been in the cell. So Cleos mentions that the the rumor around River Run is that Roose Bolton holds Heron Hall now. And Jamie realizes, oh, that's trouble. And that will indeed spell doom for the travelers. In Catalan 1, we learn Edmure has told Roose about the escape. And in Jamie 3, Vargo Hote takes Jamie and Brienne captive before dragging them to Roose at Heron Hall. So even in the midst of the fun times and character setup, George is letting you know exactly where the trap, where the threat is going to come from. Right. And Jamie brings up, hey, let's just go to Harrenhal early on. And they're like, eh, maybe, maybe not Harrenhal. Maybe, maybe we go, we just keep on the course of going on. And I think that, that George is laying the groundwork for the eventual Harrenhal plot for, for Jamie and a store of sorts, which I think is really, really good. George reminds us about the cat's paw, the guy who went after Bran, by having Jamie think it doesn't make sense for Cersei to send anyone other than him to kill Bran Stark. But if it wasn't Cersei, eh, probably not going to come up again. <laughs> Jamie's done with that. Moving on, moving on to the next mystery. Obviously, that gets solved later in the book, but George is dropping it here, just a little paragraph, just to just to keep it in the back of our minds. And and I think that the Girls Gone Canon podcast brought this up about uh, really well in Catelyn's later chapters in the Game of Thrones, where they were talking about how you know Catelyn almost gets to the point where she realizes, like, oh, I'm about to like solve this thing, and then she's interrupted by another event or another person that kind of gets shoved in in front of her, just trying to figure out the. Uh, the the fosterage uh, of uh, of John Aaron of Robin Aaron of Robin Aaron. So George does this a lot, where he's constantly interrupting people's trains of thought, where they're just about to be like, "Hey, I'm starting to put the pieces together," and nope, I have not put the pieces together. Got to save the reveal <laughs> for later on. Thumb on the scales, exactly. George also reminds us about Beric Dondarrion. This is his first mention in the book. Cleo says that he only kills soldiers, showing us how his positive reputation has spread even among Lannister loyalists. And we're going to be spending a lot of time with Beric's reputation before we meet him. Maybe a little much, but <laughs> it's George's way of showing us how, how, the, how the legend has spread, even beyond the man himself. Right. It's, it's a process that starts in the Clash of Kings with the Bloody Bummers searching for Beric Dondarrion. And then we get the continuance here. And then in Arya's chapters, we're going to meet the, meet uh, Beric Dondarrion's band. We're not going to meet Beric until her 
sixth chapter in, in, in A Storm of Swords. It takes a long while to meet Beric Dondarrion, but he, the George has a really slow burn process of building up this character to the point where we are really excited to meet him on page. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to meet, re-meet him again in, in A Storm of Swords in later chapters. He probably does it on purpose where we finally get to Beric and it's like, this guy? Right. This mm-hmm. guy. He's like so kind of unassuming and Skeletal. <laughs> beat down yep. and beat up. And it's like, Wow, okay. And, and he can't die, you know, but he does. Often. <laughs> often. Jamie asked if Brienne would prefer being addressed as Sir Brienne rather than Lady Brienne. And I and I like to think this is foreshadowing for Jamie knighting Brienne, which is an event we saw uh, in season eight, episode two. And I and I do kind of wonder if that line is going to come up when Jamie knights Brienne again. It's like, would you prefer to be dubbed or as as Sir Brienne or, or Lady Brienne? I think she's gonna choose the Sir Brienne moniker. I agree. I love that too, and I wonder if George is consciously reflecting that with Podrick. So maybe there'll be a cute moment where uh, <laughs> they realize they've both been kind of reaching the same conclusion about her in different ways. Uh, one thing uh, Jamie mentions here, one thing, one thing he thinks to himself is that Tyrion's going to laugh himself sick to hear about Jamie's escape. But when they reunite at King's Landing, it's going to be Jamie helping Tyrion escape at the, his very last chapter in the book. It's Jamie who comes to Tyrion's cell. And also this starts a continuing theme in this book with Tyrion and Jaime each thinking about how the other would handle whatever situation they're in and how they'd do it better. <laughs> uh, like Jaime thought that Tyrion could think of something clever now, but all that occurs to me is to go at them with a sword. And I wonder if just thinking about how Tyrion would mouth off gave him the inspiration for his humor during the boat chase. And I tell you what, I wish we'd gotten more happy time scenes between these two as a foundation for this just sort of hinted at relationship. It's interesting. You get the sense that Tyrion said that Jamie was the only one who ever showed him any kindness. But I also get the sense that it was just very kind of casual. Yeah. Like affection. Mm-hmm. Not like, like they didn't have deep conversations. And I think that's part of why Jamie ends up confessing Taisha, the Taisha backstory to Tyrion because he kind of realizes, oh, I've never... I've been nice to you, which no one else was, but I never really talked to you mm. and like mm-hmm. tried to help you deal with the fact that the world is so shitty to you. And I'm going to try, and it's much too late. Absolutely agree. And backfires spectacularly. Mm-hmm. Spectacularly, <laughs> but you're right. It's kind of we're kind of building up to that point because they've been thinking about each other all through the book, and then they meet, mm-hmm. handless and noseless, <laughs> and then it goes horribly <laughs> wrong. Yeah. So, uh, in, in terms of our uh, theory and discussion portion. Of the episode, we hinted at a little bit a couple times earlier, but I, I wanted to ask you, Charlotte, to talk about about Jamie and Brienne and kind of how how you think about the relationship in terms of where you're coming from with your with your background in medieval studies. I think one of the reasons that I like Brienne so much, and I guess Jamie because he hangs out with her, and why I wanted to come on for this episode in particular is how their stories separately and together, have so much in common with medieval romances. And I don't mean capital R romance like Sir Walter Scott. I mean the romances like Chrétien de Troyes or Marie de France's Arthurian romances. George makes a big deal out of how chivalry is this great big lie that society tells itself to excuse all the violence. But he also managed to end up with some pretty solid medieval-style storytelling. Because in the romances, the knights often have to go out questing to sort of find themselves, and we see that a lot with Jamie and Brienne. This chapter is just the start of these two learning things about each other, and chivalry and oath-keeping and the world in general while they're stomping around in the wilderness. And I have argued before that Jamie and Brienne in particular, and the way that they play off of each other, remind me a lot of Lancelot and Galahad. 
partly because of how Brienne serves as an example to Jamie of how a knight should act. And he can't quite live up to her example because of his own internal flaws. Yeah, I, I loved your points about Jamie Brienne's story fitting into true chivalry, TM, and specifically the Arthurian <laughs> romance of it all. So as you could probably tell, like I was talked a lot about this earlier in the episode, but I, my question to you is how do you think Queen Cersei fits into all of this in her relationship with Jamie? Well, as I briefly alluded to earlier, um, if we take Jamie as sort of a twisted Lancelot, uh, Cersei's his Guinevere. Of course, that starts to get shaky when we actually get into Cersei's POV, because by herself, she isn't very Guinevere-y. But within Jamie's story, that's her role. Kind of like how I would argue that within Jamie's story, Brienne acts kind of as both a Galahad and a Lane figure. Um, Elaine of Corbinek, not Elaine of Astolat, and I'm not going to get too far into that particular rabbit hole, but um, on her own, she's much more Galahad if he wasn't perfect to the point of being boring. <laughs> Having listened to your recent Learned Hands episode, I wondered whether she is a gender-swapped tra- traditional knight, a sexually wanton knight, while Jamie remains the chaste damsel back home. Is that what's going on in the story? Yeah. <laughs> I think I think Cersei would like for that to be the case, but Jamie definitely does more questing while Cersei has to stay home and do the politics and until they don't let her anymore. It's interesting to me that you know, you have this uh, kind of trying to to decouple the courtly elements from mm-hmm. the sexual elements because Jamie and Brienne do have that kind of uh, a more kind of the chaste elements of the romance with the actual sexuality kind of displaced onto Cersei and it does feel like it does feel to me like at some level Jamie wishes he could combine these two women. Like that would be the mm-hmm. ideal for him, <laughs> is if he could force Brienne and Cersei into like the machine <laughs> from the fly or something and just make himself. That would be for him kind of the ideal. And I wonder if what George is trying to do is make that romantic ideal impossible for Jamie by splitting it into two people and saying you can either have your traditionally beautiful a woman with who, you know, who you've been obsessed with and your partner, or you can be with the person who makes you feel mm-hmm. like a true knight. But these are antithetical. And I, th- I think that's really sure. interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting, too. I think it's a great topic. And, of course, you did write an, an essay about this, didn't you? For, I on, wrote on your a, blog? a three-part essay on this. I had a lot of thoughts. <laughs> What's it called? Jamie, Brienne, Arthuria, Arthuriana, and Romance, I believe, is what I called it. Yeah, it's an excellent essay worth worth checking out. So it's, a, it's interesting. I think George does a great job of, like, integrating a lot of these, like, 17th, 18th century, 19th century romantic and chivalric undertones to his plots in A Song of Ice and Fire. But he also, like you're saying, integrates the traditional medieval storytelling dynamics and tropes into into the story, which I think makes for a, a fuller, excellent story, especially when it comes to a character like Jamie Lannister, of course, is the best character in all of A Song of Ice and Fire mm-hmm. of fiction everywhere. <laughs> one of those questions. <laughs> one of those questions that I would definitely ask George if I had a chance was uh, which medieval literature has he actually is he actually familiar with because i can definitely see mallory but then it's like do we get into marie de france (laughs) or like how how deep do we go here with his knowledge of medieval literature i I would be curious about that question next time you see george make sure you ask him (laughs) just run into him in the publics of course that's where he's he's at, at the publics there so I think that is going to wrap us up for this analysis on A Storm of Swords, Jamie 1. As always, thank you so much to everyone for listening. Thank you to those of you who've 
you know, been watching us on our live streams. It was our first public live stream, so we appreciate you all being uh, coming in, tuning in for that. If you have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. You can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter. And you can find me at Brenna Beefish on Twitter, Brenna Beefish on Reddit, and the website is brennabeefish.substack.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Red Ralu himself, who has renounced his allegiance to the Squishers, the Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Marybald, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Way of Course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Sam Kay, Wisdom Benjikat, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bull and De Morgan, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Frey Pies, Septon, Merrifull Head of Hair, Lady Silverwing, Caboth the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Sir Keith of House Corbray, Wilder of Lady Forlorn, Lord Andrew, Warden of the Dubai Sands, Lord Young of the Ghostwoods, Lady Mira Reed, Wilder of Dark Sister, Slayer of Tinfoil, Sir Will of the Anarcho-Syndicalist Commune, Lord Clay, Sir Smallpaw, Guardian of the Stonehaven, Defender of Dunatar Castle, Septon T-Bone, the Low Septon, Refined Wrangler of Icy Arachnids, Lady Veronica, who was abandoned the orphans at the end of the crossroads to become the Queen of Memes, Lady Danielle of House Lannister, Titanium Pirate, Lady Joan, Lady Ranger of the Frostfangs, Sydney of House Quo, Princess of the Friendly Black Hotties in the Summer Isles, Random, Fierce Protector of Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, Sir Lady, Sir Lady, Jordan, Defender of the God's Eye, Lord Peter, not Peter, Drinker of Strong Wine and Lord Commander of the Flat Planet of Society, Lady of Rainy Afternoons, Warden of the Lake, and Lady Can of House Motown, goddess of sips and wine. Thank you so much, as always, to all our high lords and ladies for your support. Yeah, thank you folks so very much. We really, really appreciate your support. So join us next week as we check in with Catelyn Stark, who, as it turns out, is not having a good time at all back at River Run. Poor Catelyn. This is, uh, but things are going to improve. Who could for her, have expected right? that from this chapter? No, right. who could have seen that coming? <laughs> no, but she's, things are going to get better, right? After Catelyn one, it just gets successfully better. You start a low point and just build your way up. Oh sure, <laughs> that's the low point. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, poor Catelyn, poor mom. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Shyla for joining us, and we'll see you next time for a Storm of Swords, Catelyn one. <laughs> <laughs>